Hey, Dr. GX here, just popping in real quick like. You know, those in the know know that there ain't no party like a P-Funk party because a P-Funk party don't stop. And that can be said for this deeper than deep conversation with longtime George Clinton manager, Archie Ivy. So once again, we tear the roof off this sucker. Enjoy. How, how, did, how did the personnel come together for this first capital release? Because not everybody came along from Parliament Funkadelic, but some did, a few new faces. How did that sort of come together like that? Huh, that's an interesting question. And I don't know if I have a frame of reference uh, in that uh, people, because that was been about the time when uh, Steve Washington and Steve and Sheila Washington uh, kind of like joined into the fold. Um, Steve was originally from a slave aura. He was out of that that camp. And uh, uh, Sheila was one of the brides of fungus time and she started dating. Actually, she married Steve. And so uh, that's how he got in. It was pretty much people, whoever was still around <laughs> and hadn't moved on for just fed up with it or whatever reason i don't know uh, without looking at the lineup to uh, be refreshed as to those personnel changes i i never uh, uh until you just posed the question i never really considered it uh, personnel changes because gary was still there boogie was still there i mean the core people were still yeah. there you have some bernie some bootsy um yeah yeah well, bernie bootsy were they were um uh, primarily you know, think about, you know, one of the things that, uh, first of all, Bernie was the, 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 a, a mastermind behind the arrangements and the musicality of the recordings. Because when Bernie would put whatever he put on a track, it would just take it up a notch. It's almost like uh, Emerald throwing down something and saying, bam! <laughs> That's that's what Bernie Warrell would bring to to the table uh, uh, when he would do it. But Bootsy, most of Bootsy's stuff, uh, a, a lot of that was throwaway tracks. George would just go to Bootsy and say, hey, man, you got any tracks that you don't like? Like Flashlight was that. Flashlight, incredible hit record. But Bootsy, uh, it was a totally different thing with Bootsy. It was... Uh, um, it is, uh, uh, of course, Bernie part wasn't on there. It was just, he had a different bass pattern altogether. But uh, Bootsy's brother Catfish is playing that that lick, which is, you know, Catfish played the licks on a lot of James Brown songs when Bootsy and him were with James Brown. And it's just, uh, I call them chinks, you know, chink, 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 chink. And, and Flashlight has got an incredible thing like that. But it had a great feel. Now, the one thing about Bootsy, that what I said uh, is Bootsy had a feel like nobody else. I mean, when when Bootsy played, uh, he could he felt it. He be, he was one with his bass, uh, a, a lot like Jimi Hendrix is one with his guitar. Bootsy's like that with his bass. Now it might not be as complicated as um, Stanley Stanley Clark or uh, who's that Marcus uh, Miller Marcus Miller. It might not seem as complicated like that, but rhythmically in in the feel and the emotion that he pulls out from it is incomparable. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, if when it comes to his, you know, everybody's not a writer, everybody's not a producer. Uh, George honed his craft at at crafting songs and recording uh, by doing his homework, listening to Motown, but he also uh, was in the Brill Building and he got hired by Joe Bett. Brill Building is where everybody wrote. It was where all the writers came every day in New York. So uh, um, it had that you, you, you learned how to do that. Uh, what's the name? Carol King was in there. Burt Bacharach was in there. All of them were writing stuff and you'd walk through the halls and you'd hear these kind of things going on. And that's how George learned how to, to do songs. And uh, one thing about Bernie and, as, and Boosie, as talented as they are at 
their craft and their musicality, their musicianship, uh, they fell short of their understanding how to make a record. Uh, and, and, and composition. A comp well, it's even, even different than a composition. It's a record <laughs> because those are two different mediums. Yeah, they make great compositions, but all, all great compositions don't translate into a good record, uh, especially back in the days when it was records. Right, right. So, uh, 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 the certain elements you had to be there, that catchiness, that, that, that hook line, that, that those things that would generate excitement, they kind of, uh, 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 some people just don't, that's not their craft, that's not their skill. And, and that was something George was very, very good at. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, Bootsy with the bass. I saw the show at the Forum, not far from where you were living, I think in 1978, the Monster yeah. Rock show. Yeah, yeah, that was incredible. Yeah, Bootsy, Bootsy had a sound rig that was only rivaled by, or that would rival uh, Pink Floyd. When he went out, they did. They used to have a cluster. I think that was at that show you're talking about. If I don't know if you remember, but he had a cluster of of speakers that hung from the center of the arena. And one of the things that people don't understand, each of uh, Bootsy's strings on his bass had its own pickup and its own sound. He, he had four outlets coming out. And that's why he had that monster bass. It was like an overwhelming sound. When you step on a pedal and stuff, I mean, uh, when he would just kick it into that gear, it, you'd get blown away, was, you know. Yeah, yeah. Bass on steroids, man. Yeah, yeah, totally. And this record came out um, not... I don't know if it's the same year or year after uh, George's first Capital, but this was sort of like the closest thing we would see to a Parliament Funkadelic record in the 80s. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this was on uh, this was on CBS. So Yeah. Yeah. We, we were trying to fulfill uh, to maintain that relationship with them. So uh, the stuff that we continued to record, even though we didn't have any more uh, access to advances from them, uh, uh, we did fulfill our obligation and deliver that album to them. And that was that was the one. And uh, uh, we had a great track on it, Generator Pop. And um, something happened. I want to say I lost the master to that. And we, we had to make a copy of it. So the quality of that track is not quite the same as the other tracks. Uh, the fidelity isn't quite the right. Same. Yeah, yeah. If people audiophiles could tell it, <laughs> and, and I think that restricted the success. It was a very good track there. Well, I, I never felt like the label really gave it its just push, you know. But they didn't. Uh, we were we were considered to be a troublesome and a mess, and it was basically. It, no, they weren't spending any money to it because they were still, uh, shall we say, disappointed that they didn't get Roger, Roger Troutman, which I heard it through the grapevine by Roger Troutman, the record that we had promised them. They had already heard it. They had already done the artwork for it, ended up on Warner Brothers. And it was a stupid hit. It was a big hit. And Roger fouled it up with another hit. And it's interesting. I can't remember the list of songs, but one day... Uh, uh, George knew that Roger liked to do covers of stuff. And he gave him a list of all these uh, songs, like, uh, uh, and the top of it was I Heard It Through the Grapevine. And then uh, for the next three or four albums, if you think, go back to Roger's. Midnight song, Hour was one. Midnight Hour, that, that's uh, that's how he got all of those, those the ideas to do those songs. It was something that George had uh, laid out for him. Huh. Um, so this record was the uh, next one and I thought even though it didn't have a, an atomic dog on it I thought from front to back it was definitely a stronger record than the first one yeah it was it was um, they were, uh, but, but again Capital didn't know what to do with it um, alright so we're, we're talking about this record which uh Overall was was stronger. The first side is killer with Nubian Nut, Quickie, Last Dance. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, no question. It, it was well done. Uh, 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 we we thought it was going to do more than what it did. Uh, it had the cute tradition. By this time, George had gotten into doing cute videos. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. They wouldn't be just the, the guy singing and dancing. Uh, they had like a slub story. And so Last Dance was like a mini love story thing that we had with a little bit of animation in it. <coughs> excuse me, pixelation animation. Um, and, uh, but they, they didn't, uh, uh, Capital done, just didn't have the machinery. I would have done that as the first single, Last Dance. <coughs> I'm sorry? I would have gone with Last Dance as the first single on that one. What was what the first single? Nubian Nut. It? Yeah, Nubian Nut, yeah. Yeah, again, that was, uh, I don't know, I think that, that, George might have actually picked that one. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm, I'm coughing a lot. But yeah, that was, uh, <clears throat> yeah, Last Dance was, and, and actually, uh, a Quickie was a great, tra great track. Too. I love, love Quickie, yeah. But you know, it's, uh, I remember I was over somebody's house <clears throat> at like a gathering, just people casually gathering. And they were playing songs. It was like a little house party. And Quickie came on. Everybody jumped up and danced, right? They were dancing to it. And uh, they wanted to know, when was this coming out? Mm -hmm. I said, that was out about three years ago. <laughs> and that's the thing about George's. Uh, uh, sometimes when you're riding the front of the flashlight, the afterglow is a little further back, if that's making any sense in the analogy. And, and what I'm trying to say is uh, the, the, the thing about having music that's timeless, that doesn't age, is at the time you put it out, it might not be receptive to the basic marketplace. And it actually grows on you over time. That song, I remember... Um... My now wife, when I met her, she was not that into P-Funk. I kind of got a little more into it. But that track, she immediately dug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was great. It was a lot of fun. And there were some sounds. Uh, we would think by that time we were using uh, sequencers, Synclavier, uh, which uh, I don't profess to really understand how it worked but it was like the start of what then became digital like music creation and stuff there was already digital keyboards and stuff but this was the sequencers and packages uh, 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 you could move sections around it eventually the concept eventually evolved into what was called pro tools and uh, <clears throat> and then it got into all the boards and stuff so there was at the very forefront of automation and recording. This record, um, Shouldn't Have Bit Fish, was 83, which I saw the uh, show at the Beverly Theater that year, which oh, was uh, yeah. a fantastic show. Bootsy came out, blew the roof off. Yeah, um, yeah. Prince supposedly was there. Were you at that show? Yeah, I was there. Of course I was so there. Is, is the legend true about Prince and, and being there and then going to do Erotic City? Uh, yeah, that's that's why George went and recorded Erotic City. That, that's probably uh, well. George has gotten into a couple more covers now. Uh, he did uh, Eric Clapton now too, but at that time he hadn't recorded anything from anybody else, and he did Erotic City. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, Prince was uh, he was there on the side of the stage, and I remember one of the the guys in the group, uh, Ron Ford, he grabbed the guitar. And took it over and stuck it in Prince's face. He said, "Well, you gonna jail with this or what?" And Prince was like, "All like, like, you know, like uh, 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 nervous. He wouldn't do it and stuff. But he was so moved by what was happening that yeah, he went and recorded Erotic City that night. And that show had ha Hazel Hampton, Scheider, everybody yeah. was at that show. Maceo." Yeah. That was great. It, it, and there's a recording out there, as unauthorized as it may be. <laughs> but uh, it, it's uh, uh, Beverly Hills Live, yeah. 
people like the Beverly Hills Theater. How much exposure or time did you end up spending with with Prince? Of course, George later was on his label. What was your impression of Prince with whatever time you had with him? <laughs> Prince, well, let me go back. When, um, what was this guy's name? I can't remember his name. I want to say it was Reggie Jones. But uh, he had been Earth, Wind, and Fire's manager. So he was, quote, unquote, he was like basically a scout for this white management firm called. He wasn't a scout, but he would find people and then Cavallo and Ruffalo would take over their careers. So he had he had uh, worked with with uh, Earth, Wind and Fire. Earth, Wind and Fire was actually formed because Jessica Cleves was dating Jim Brown and she wanted to have a, another group after. Uh, Friends of uh, Distinction. Friends of Distinction, right. And so then uh, uh, Jim Brown was uh, said, hey, I've got this group. And then he connected them with, uh, but he, he, he told them he had a movie for them to do, which was Melvin Van Peebles' first movie, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. And so Earth and the Fire did the soundtrack. But he told them in order for them to do it, they had to have Jessica in the group. So there was a conflict right there. She did their first two albums, their Warner Brothers albums. And then when they got that agreement, they they dropped her. She was was through with Jim Brown by that time. And anyhow, that's an aside. We're back to uh, so this guy. Uh, did I what was I can't remember what his actual name was, and I do apologize to him because he was a great guy. But he calls me up one day and he said, "Hey, I've got this new artist." This is when we were landing the mothership at the Coliseum. And he says, he really likes George and P-Funk. And I want to know, is it okay for him to come and just stand on the stage? He said, he j I just got him signed to Warner Brothers. And I said, sure. And uh, no problem. So he comes and, and introduces me to this guy, young guy. And it was Prince, right? And uh, <laughs> I remember... Uh, Two people whose hands I shook that didn't seem to have any energy. And I guess because they shake so many hands that uh, they don't make a firm grasp. But the same handshake, ironically, was Prince and Michael Jackson. They both had like the same kind of soft. It was now I'm not saying they, anything about anything other than that. It's they just they, their handshakes were similar. But uh, uh so Prince, uh, he stayed there. He enjoyed the show. And then uh, next thing I heard about him, he was uh, he was at the uh, uh, he was there when we brought in. I'm not I'm not sure. It, I think it was Bootsy stretching out in a rubber band album. And he was in there. I don't, I'm not sure of the years right here, but it might. I think that's what it was. Well, wait, let me hold you. Hold up a sec. It's Prince's first Warner Brothers album. Was in seventy eight. Yeah, so, kind of, yeah. So, when was when was stretching out in the rubber band? Wasn't that about seventy six? Seventy six. Seventy eight was player of the year. Okay, so it must it must have been in uh, one nation. Anyhow, he was sitting in the lobby to bring it out. Well, okay, no, this is it. It might have been uh, uh, it, before that. Because he was coming to deliver his album, and he heard we were in the in the A and R offices playing whatever the release we had. And I'm not sure if it was Knee Deep or if it was Prince a uh, uh, Bootsy. Sound seemed to me like it was a Bootsy recording. It might have been Knee Deep, uh, but uh, he told George later when we were in Minneapolis. He said, um, um, "Man, I was there." The day you guys brought, and I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the song, but he said, the day you guys was playing your album, and I was about to turn my album in, and uh, I couldn't do it. I had to go back and rework the whole thing, and that, that later became controversy, right? Um, so that was, that, that's another Prince thing. It sounds um, like that Earth, Wind & Fire story where they got knocked off the stage by P-Funk, and, 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 and they had to go retool to try to get, yeah. you know, as good as yeah. P-Funk, but yeah. yeah. A lot of stories like that. And uh, when he comes to knocking people off the stage, George was a master. He knew how, 
before the group really snapped to headline status, we were the opening or middle act on shows. And I mean, we did this one tour with uh, Rufus and Shaka Khan. And he knew how to leave the audience where Shaka Khan could step on the stage and do no wrong. They were perfectly set up for whatever came next. Or if he tweaked it just a little more, she could come on the stage and do nothing. Because <laughs> uh, uh, they would literally, P-Funk had tore the roof off, right? And you couldn't follow that. I think he he didn't do that until the very last show. And they just gave the full whole, whole thing. But it was, uh, that happened to war too. I remember we were playing at the Berkeley Community Center. And uh, P-Funk had done that set, and the crowd was, uh, when it was over, you know, we had uh, time things, 45 minutes set, maybe 50. And the crowd was just buzzing, right? And then uh, Howard Scott came out, and I think it was him, it wasn't Lonnie, yeah, it was Howard, came out and said, okay, enough of that noise, now for some real music. And the place went crazy. They went to booing and screaming, and they never let them play. And, and Lonnie, like, pushed over the towers and, like, knocked over his organ and stuff. And they eventually had to leave the stage. They couldn't get this show started because of that. So, uh, yeah, that, that was, and that was right soon as we were going. Because so you have to understand, the infectious chants of we want the funk, give up the funk, and tear the roof off them. Uh, going to tear the roof off the mother second. Those chants were done like a good two years before we, uh, uh, before they were recorded, and that was so. Uh, uh, and they were, they were like, they were, they're infectious in in a, in a situation. A, a, a P funk party don't stop. A P funk party don't stop. Back to Prince now, because there's one more. I think it's just one more. Yeah, two more actually. Um, when we went to Paisley Park. We got the tour of Paisley Park. Prince, what I'm going to say is Prince never really like appreciated me, shall I say. Uh, because I was always quiet and respectful and stuff. And this one time, after he had toured us, he showed us the place where he does his, his he, because he had a, uh, a tailor and a seamstress full time upstairs at Paisley Park. And they would make all the, the fluffy outfits that he liked and stuff, right? Because he's a small guy. I mean, you don't go and find that stuff on the off the rack. Uh, if you if, if you try to do that, you could probably have to, to do in the kids or the women's section. So it wasn't going to be that sexy stuff that he would do. He's a very tasteful guy. Genius, no doubt. Uh, but he, um, I'm from Compton, mind you. And um, this is right when he was, uh, right after, I think, I don't know, but Anyhow, for some reason, I got the Kim Basinger thing in my mind. Oh, uh, so but, around the Batman soundtrack time. Yeah, 89. Yeah. Uh, uh, when, when, when was Graffiti Bridge? 90. 90, yeah. So this was, so we might have been like uh, filming Graffiti Bridge then. Yeah. Because, uh, or, or, but I knew that thing. He, he wasn't still, Kim Basinger wasn't there. But he was, he was there, and we were sitting around being casual, and everybody was, you know, First of all, when George used to talk, Prince would just uh, listen, and he was keen, like with his mouth open and drooling and stuff, like a kid, and enthused by George's stories and stuff. And you That's know, George basically uh, he got the idea because he had asked George about how he got Parliament Funkadelic, and George explained him the story. And it wasn't so long after that before he became the artist formerly known as Prince. Okay. It, it was it, this wasn't at the same time, but this was during one of those sessions. But at this particular time, we were all sitting around just kicking it, and I felt comfortable enough to make a comment. I said, "Man, I just want to know, dude, you're the coolest guy on the planet. You got all the money. All the women love you. You make the best music. You're the hottest thing out there." But you can't walk through the, my neighborhood in those six-inch spiked heels, right? And he took offense. And I was just, I, I was trying to be polite, telling him, like, you're great. Don't, you know, being short is no big deal, right? You still going, everybody's still going to love you. But he didn't, uh, uh, I don't know, he, 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 would, he would purposely have these long pants that unless, if you really wasn't looking, you didn't know, 
he was wearing six inch spike heels. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on, on, uh, when underneath. So uh, he, after that, he and I never really spoke much. But I tell you this one time: there's a scene in Graffiti Bridge where Prince uh, does this whole dance scene. I don't remember the, 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 what was happening. I just remember it was this whole Fred Astaire routine. First of all, Graffiti Bridge, Prince did a lot of choreographed dances. <clears throat> now, what's amazing is these dances were filmed day after day after day. So I'm trying to figure out, when did he learn these routines? Mm. <laughs> how, how did he know, know this routine? But this one particular scene, he does it. Now, first of all, mind you, it's like minus 56 below zero wind chill factor. Now, I'm from California, so I was just, you know, amazed when you go to the set from like the one building into the next building that you could like spit on the ground and it would be ice before it hit the ground, right? That kind of stuff amazed me. I'd never seen anything like that. But it was so cold, you could feel the water in your eyeballs freezing. And uh, so that's that's what's going on. It was in the, and he had purchased this, this old warehouse building and each floor was set up uh, as sound stages. And that's where they filmed Graffiti, graffiti Bridge. So in this one day, this one scene, he uh, he does this whole dance routine, and it ends with him going out the back door to whatever club the, the scene was at, and he slides down this banister, and then hits the ground perfectly, like and just uh, uh, spins or does something. But when he finished shooting the scene, everybody stood up and applauded because it was that great. Okay. And it was it was it was perfect. Now, so then after that, he was talking to everybody, and he's got to see the the takes on the on the little playback thing. And it was you know he was cool and he was feeling good about himself. So now, outside of that particular part, there was this area with a bunch of wooden tables, like in a in a uh, a, a schoolyard where you would eat lunch at, right? So that, that was the area they had to serve the meals to the crew and the, and the cast. And so I was sitting there. And mind you, the generators had were just outside the thing. And um, they would leak water. I, I don't know why, but the water was coming down and was headed towards a drain that was in the center of the floor. But it was so cold, it was frozen. So Prince comes out of there and he's feeling himself. He knows he had just killed it, right? And he comes bouncing through that area and he hits this slick of ice and goes straight up in the air and falls flat on his butt, right? And now I'm the only one sitting there, right? If it had been anybody else there and I made eye contact with, I probably would have lost it. Because, you know, falls are funny. Slipping falls are funny. They're yeah. tragic. It's not funny. I mean, it's happened to me. I didn't know what black ice was, and I slipped and fell <laughs> on it. Yeah, but uh, he, uh, uh, he slipped and fell, and he looks briefly at me, and then he bounces up and continues that strut on off, like like not showing that it affected him. So those are, those are my prints. <laughs> He's a consummate artist, consummate creative guy. He recorded a song every day. I mean, I, I, I'm sure that uh, at, at, there will be a time when they're going to just continually release his stuff. Do you, do you know if, if uh, there are any other collaborations with George that haven't been released? Interesting question. Uh, no, because <laughs> after that, I don't say that he didn't invite me back, but I wasn't really... Uh, keen on going to hang out in uh, uh, Minneapolis. It was not, it was, it was too cold for me. Uh, I would suspect there might be, but to uh, uh, definitively state that there are, I can't do that. When, when I first heard, you know, I'm, two of my all-time favorites are P-Funk and Prince, um, probably Stevie Wonder, maybe Herbie Hancock or the other guys, but um, great list. When I, when I first heard that Prince was teaming up or getting George on Paisley Park, 
I thought, man, this is going to blow minds. But <laughs> I was disappointed in Cinderella Theory, and I was wondering what your take is on how that sort of collaboration worked or didn't work. And Well, uh, it, it wasn't much collaboration. Uh, Prince had ideas. Uh, I'll tell you one of the main ones that where you know we would have we had conflict on stuff. Uh, why should I dog you out? We had conflict because they didn't want me to have anything to do with the video, and I had always written the videos. Okay, the, I, uh, we, we would come up with the concept. I would basically tell them what to do. Uh, the story behind the Tommy Dog, but all the capital videos that were cute and well received. Uh, why should I dog you out? Uh, the guy who was then Prince's manager was um, the guy who directed Purple Rain. I don't know his name. Um, but he Prince made him his manager and over his whole operation. And he uh, began to ran with, run with that concept. And so he was making a lot of decisions. He didn't last long because he wasn't really equipped for that. But um, I remember uh, in that video, they didn't want me to have anything to do with it. And they wanted George to do a dance, the whole dance routine behind, a, a, you know, those seamless uh, white screens, backgrounds with girls coming in and dancing. And those, 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 those typical MTV uh, videos. So, so it was I, like day, day glow colors that were popular around that time. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but but I, I I remember we put the the part in there where we brought the flag back, and it's right at the beginning of that video. It says, "Get a little funk, and then you sell out. Shake a few rumps, and then you sold out." And then he takes the flag and say, "We did all that without selling out," and, and it was like an homage to uh, "We're still here." And uh, but the uh, the the thing is, he didn't have Bootsy and Bernie. I don't know if they participated on that if they did it wasn't at the same uh, level uh bernie might not be on that one at all and fiddler did a lot of the work um but uh, huh i missed those guys on that one. Oh yeah yeah exactly but uh the uh but what happened one of the things that prince prince had a different perspective of george and he was trying to make it totally george and george never george be the first one to tell you it's not about me uh we're doing this final tour now and it's uh, uh a lot of people are uh, looking at this as being the demise of the group and so we're trying to define and make it known to the public that uh, the band is going on and uh, uh george's role in the shows has been less and less over you know the past few years but he's still the master of ceremonies. He's still that persona that's larger than life. And it's going to be hard for us to overcome it. But with um, one of the things that Prince told George, he said, uh, George, what you need to do is fire all your band and get you a bunch of young guys. <laughs> and that look you have on your face is pretty much the look George had on his face. I remember it was about like uh, before the second album. Uh, or, or when we were, we were, Prince came to some one of the gigs we had or something, he was there, and he came up to George and he said, Man, "Why didn't you tell me that was the dumbest thing I could have ever said?" <laughs> right? He was. He, it sounds like he was looking at George the way he looked at himself, but Prince's yeah. model was totally different from George Clinton's model. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, <laughs> and he was trying to recreate George along those lines. And it, it didn't quite work that well. That well. We kind of skipped over this one, which was the last Capitol record, R&B Skeletons, which I thought was really strong and had the very, you mentioned Steve Washington, he was very prominent on this one. Yeah. Um, and Do Fries Go With That Shake was a hit of sorts. Uh, yeah. So how come, how come the Capitol thing came apart? Uh, we didn't really want to be there. They were, uh, they had problems. Uh, they had uh, the FBI or whomever had busted them for payola, so they had to, they were real skeptical about how their promotion market uh, department was running. The uh, it, it, it had also come out that their RB promotion people 
they had to revamp that department because the field guys were selling copies of Atomic Dog out of their trunk. Uh, uh, and we weren't getting reported reports that like one of the, the biggest things that we always point to is that if you ask capital, they'll tell you Atomic Dog never went gold. <laughs> it should have crossed over. Well, uh, yeah, well, it did in the club world. Yeah, and it, it did. It did in the real world. Like now it's popular. Like they're using Some commercials. Yeah, e-commerce or something. Yeah. You know, Tommy Dog is everywhere. It's in all the, uh, uh, it's going to be in, I don't know if I can talk about that, but it's in all kind of movies, right? <laughs> and and uh, 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 so these, the, it, it, it's like what I said, time, sometimes they have to, things have to catch up to themselves. But Atomic Dog was like, and, and it sounds, I don't know if it sounds braggadocious or what, but I'm serious in saying that record went on the radio in was it late 82 or early 83 or something and didn't go off for like a good 10 years. It remained not in heavy rotation, but you were going to hear it once a day. And in clubs, uh, I said it went gold just in club DJs buying their, having to refresh their copies of it to, to play in the club. You know, I was, I, I, I was a club DJ from, uh, you know, late 70s through early 90s and also ran a mobile disc jockey company. And so I followed the charts and all that really closely. And I was aggravated, you know, that um, something like Atomic Dog wasn't high in the Hot 100 and stuff like that. I felt like, yeah. you know, what the heck is going on, man? Yeah. Well, they, 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 uh, they, they couldn't do the resources. And... Uh, I'm trying to think if that was the time uh, when uh, they had other artists that they were trying to promote as well. Uh, uh, that they, they, the hardcore R&B, their, their whole promotion staff was out of Philadelphia. So they were like serious throwback R&B. They were more comfortable with the Peebo Brysons and, and that kind of stuff than they were dealing with the George. Melissa Morgan, um, Remember, George was at a radio station, and the Capital Promotion guy was there with George and Melissa Morgan. He brought him bro. And the radio guy kept talking up Atomic Dog. This was before it was released as the single. And to the extent that the radio guy had to, the, the Capital guy told the radio guy, well, we don't want to promote that one right now. We're trying to promote you know, Melissa Morgan. And this is with George sitting right there, right? Yes. So uh, Capitol was a strange place to be. Wasn't uh, there some crossover with Tom Vickers being at Capitol when George went through there? Or Was Tom at Capitol? I don't remember Tom ever being at Capitol. I remember he was at Polygram. I thought he might have spent time at Capitol. Maybe I'm wrong. He might have. I don't know. But, it, but I don't think that was at the same time, yeah. Overlooked track on this album that's one of my favorites from the 80s is Cool Joe. <laughs> cool Joe. That's yeah. a jam. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I really like funk. <laughs> so did your role change uh, if we're looking at mid-late 80s versus mid-late 70s? How did your role change, if at all? Well, I, I went from publicist publicist to uh, basically manager focused on tour to uh, advisor, consultant, manager focused on legal battles, dealing with lawyers. So yeah, the role changes with a brief stint as being the head of Uncle Jam Records for a short that, time. That last one doesn't sound as fun to me, Archie. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it wasn't. And it's important, still, but not as fun. in the middle of them, yeah. Yeah. So, well, uh, and you start line I got in. So wherever it takes me. <laughs> you um, you stuck with George through the '90s and the P Funk All Star stuff, and um, and um, the records started getting less frequent, but the touring kept on almost nonstop. And it still does. Yeah. It's always been about the live show. That, that's an experience that. Um, uh, it is not to be equaled. 
uh, and it's not to be, um, I mean, look, it's, it's an experience that um, people who aren't religious, it's the closest thing to a religious experience that they could have. They don't know a spiritual experience they could have. They don't even know how to explain it. But they uh, 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 marvel at, at the experience that they do have. And, and it's interesting because, like I said, if you look at the set list, it seems like it's the same songs. But if you listen to the sets, they're played slightly different. This will happen. And George does that on purpose. It's about because p- different people are on fire different nights. Okay, I'm not going to say it has to do with those, uh, like the, the, the statistician, statisticians and stuff where they talk about the, the algorithms of the human body and the changes at this time and time. Biorhythms. Biorhythms, yeah. So, uh, uh, but it, it could be that, but just some, sometimes just attitude. <laughs> and George will, will, will point to the one, a call, because he, he's listening constantly to what's going on. And he can hear who it is. Now all of a sudden he'll say, shh, 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 Lodge, come up here. And he'll call him up, and then he, it's his turn to solo. And that happens quite often because he's listening to see where where that funk jumps, where the one jumps from here to here to here to here, and who is falling on now. Well, you're much brighter now. So we turned on lights and Archie. We got the spotlight on you. Now you're really on stage. Um, <laughs> so I've seen P-Funk, you know, since the 70s, dozens and dozens of times through all the eras. And I thought in the mid nineties and around there and a little bit after it was, it was always great, but it wasn't maybe quite where it was. But then I felt like it got rejuvenated with some of the youth that came in a few years back and that for mm-hmm. the past five years, at least however long it's been that um, it's got new energy. And I think it's better now than it had been in maybe, you know, 10 or 20 years. Yeah. And and a lot of people have that. And, you know, uh, people, and especially the more familiar they get with it, they have their moments and their errors and their favorite conglomerates, okay, or their, their, con, con, their favorite versions. And they get stuck on it. And then there's a couple of them online. There's a couple of them that just go to all the shows. One guy's called P-Funk One. And he travels all over the world to see yeah. P, to see the show. P hat, yeah, yeah. And he uh, uh, he's been he's given thumbs up on a lot of shows. He went through an era when it was like thumbs down a lot, but he still kept hanging in there. And then slowly you get caught up in it, and so and then he, he gets back to thumbs up again. And it, it's uh, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, you can never have your first experience again. Okay, and uh, uh, sometimes if that first experience is so great, then your expectations are uh, 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 are at a level that, for whatever reasons, they don't ever get uh, uh, fulfilled again. But then after a while, old things become new, and I don't know if it's the energies of the people or just the way they decide to make the subtle arrangements in the shows and what songs they choose to perform. But uh, there is definitely a new life now. Uh, uh, They just had a very, very good tour of Australia with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And by the end of the tour, the Chili Peppers was was basically having P-Funk come out on stage and they started setting them up uh, to play parts and they were when they start playing Give It Away, uh, uh, it, it was just like a party there. And the people over in Australia went bananas. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and they're a great example. We talked about P-Funk influencing so much, like rap and stuff, but big influence on rock, too, and especially that, like, branch of rock that the Chili Peppers yeah. and um, other groups like that followed in. But, um, yeah, the show now should not be missed. I recommend it highly. Um, and I've seen, I've seen him probably about three or four times on this like configuration of, of the band. Um, I'll, they're coming through again uh, in July. 
in I think Greensboro or something like that. So I'm hoping yeah. to, to catch that one. Um, what else did I want to ask you? In all these years, what's the biggest conflict or disagreement you ever had with George? Hmm. Um, well, we had a real big one. Uh, and uh, he, for some reason, he had a notion that uh, I wasn't making good decisions in terms of his booking. And he wanted to put somebody to work with me that I didn't uh, believe in because they had no background. They, they were coming from someplace completely different, from a different world. Uh, that one was, uh, it, I even had, to, I even stepped away for a brief period to, just to see it until, and I don't remember what happened but we were able to get past that and he called me because something happened and he knew nobody could deal with it but me. Um, you know, uh, there was there was a time when when I first came on and uh, we wanted to define things. There's a famous recording that was released on Casablanca, an interview with George Clinton about the whole landing of the mothership and everything, or the close of Dr. Funkenstein or something. But it's me doing the interview. I'm the one doing the talking. And the whole first year or two, when we used to do radio call-ins, I would do the call-in, okay, and, and talk for George. And I remember when it came to the time and he was telling me like, uh, yeah, man, you can do the, you can do the phone-in, right? And I said, not anymore, man. Like, you know, the world knows who you are. And it's a, you need to be heard. Uh, uh, so that uh, moved in a way. But alongside of that, what went along with that, he also let me make a lot of decisions unilaterally. Um, and uh, I, I would never, I wouldn't even have to check with him. I did. And at this point, I don't even remember what the de decision was, but it was one day something I said, and he didn't, you know, back me up on it. And it wasn't like a big conflict, but it was just, okay, well, this ship has sailed. Uh, and from that point on, I always explained to him anything that I was intending to do or presented it to him as to what's available to do and allowed him to make his own decisions. Um, but we never had really had conflict. And I think the main reason was because I never was involved with the money. That's usually where management and artists get odd. Uh, uh, because money is, is, is the love of money is the root of all evil. And uh, money is a temptation that you would, uh, uh, and I, I used to really dislike when we would be playing shows and I would be the one who have to go and pick up the, the, the balance of the guarantee or whatever money. I remember once we were in the uh, Capitol Center in D.C., sellout show. I think this was a show when George, uh, at the end of the show, he ended up butt naked on the screen, right? <laughs> on the big, uh, what do they call those things? Jumbotrons in those days. So, uh, and he was, he had on the sheet and then he pulled it up and he was butt naked under it. And, um, but in that show, I go to pick up the money. Now, I dress like P-Funk. Uh, this, this is before I start wearing suits and stuff on the, on the road dealing with stuff. Uh, but I would be dressed like, you know, a fan. And um, I remember picking up, and it was like, we were picking up like something like $50,000, 50-something some odd thousands of dollars. And I started packing them on me, you know, so I look, so there's no bulge and stuff. I just pack it, have, you know, a flight suit, military flight suit on and stuff. And when I get ready to leave, the promoter says, wait a minute, I'll call, I'll call two guards for you. And I said, I don't think so. If I walk out of here now, ain't nobody going to know. Be too conspicuous, to yeah. But you put two guards around me, now I'm a target. No, thank you, right? And, and so I went and, and uh, partied the rest of the time with the um, in the audience with this all this money on me. Um, but yeah, so it was, uh, um, that was, those are the rare occasions when I had 
that responsibility. But for the most part, uh, we always had accountants. We always had bookkeepers, we had tour accountants, uh, uh, road managers. Other people were responsible to handle the finances. And quite often, those people took advantage of those positions. So when you're dealing in the, uh, the business and there's so much cash going around, there's, it's easy to misplace $1,000 a show when you're dealing with $7,500,000 a night. It's easy to misplace $1,000. And we're doing 50 or 75 shows a year. Well, that road manager, that tour manager could, you know, get quite a stash over over uh, the long haul. Uh, I won't name names, but they were, we ran into situations where Skimming. a couple yeah. of them did, did that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the main why we really didn't have uh, big conflicts. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we became friends first. Okay. And uh, 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 we, so I enjoyed hanging out with him, uh, uh, even, if, even though I was writing stories about him or, or stuff. Uh, again, I was going to the studios because of my connection with uh, uh, Raz and, and Eddie. And so, and then Georgia let me be there. We'd talk and just kick it. And sometimes if somebody asked me something, I would write about it. But uh, so I, I, I had total respect for what he was doing as a creative artist. Thank you.